Dear, dear listeners and fellow travelers on the long winding road of logic programming, I hope you are ready to dive back into the enchanted world of computational logic. Yes, I know I said you should expect more frequent episodes on this podcast, and instead you got the biggest gap since I started. What can I say? Life is more unpredictable than logic. But at least now you know this podcast is alive and well. It's just taking long, slow breaths. The topic of this episode is different kinds of graph databases, namely RDF stores and their cousins, the property graphs. I'm talking with Kevin Feeney, who is a logician and one of the founders of Terminus DB. I first became aware of Kevin through a series of blog posts that explained the similarities and differences between these different kinds of graph databases. This might qualify as a pretty dry topic, but Kevin managed to sound very lively and laugh out funny while writing about schema language standards and formal ontologies. I had wondered about the connections between modern graph databases like Neo4j and RDF stores for some time, and Kevin's writings really shone a bright light on this rather complicated topic. And then I found out about Terminus DB, the database project that uh, Kevin co-founded. Terminus DB is interesting in several ways. First of all, it's to a large extent implemented in Prolog, which is, of course, pretty unusual. Secondly, it's continuing a tradition of basing databases on formal logic and reasoning. All of this is explored in my conversation with Kevin, but since we jump in at the deep end right from the start in the interview, I want to just mention some of the key concepts that uh, come up. Terminus DB is descended from technology associated with the semantic web, a project that got started at the turn of the century. The semantic web vision is something like a mashup of the World Wide Web and ideas and techniques from the symbolic AI tradition. It's saying, what if all this fantastic comprehensive content we have on the web was intelligible to computers in a way that made it possible to apply automated reasoning to it? If computers had a deep understanding of the things that people know and care about, and the relations among those things, then they could find all kinds of connections among the knowledge that is scattered around the web, and they could do much more for us humans with much less manual guidance from us. So, in the attempt to realize this vision, a lot of different technologies were created, many of them based on research from the past several decades in logic programming and related areas. One of the core technologies of the semantic web is RDF, which stands for the Resource Description Framework. In RDF, knowledge is represented by triples that encapsulate a unit consisting of subject, predicate, and object, each of which can in turn point to a complex structure. On top of this uh, foundation, much more expressive frameworks were developed, most notably OWL, or OWL, which Kevin talks quite a bit about. On top of these rich representations, in turn, people then built reasoning engines, which are in many ways similar to logic programming systems like Prolog. Kevin mentions, for example, Jenna, which is one of the better known of these reasoning engines. All right, I'll let Kevin do the rest of the explaining. One thing I should mention is that this interview was recorded well over a year ago, 
and things have changed a bit in the Terminus DB project since then, and I'll talk a bit about that at the end of the episode. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Feeney. Kevin, uh, welcome to the Search Space podcast. Happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much. Delighted to be on. Um, I know what I know about you is uh, you're one of the creators of a very interesting database project called Terminus DB, which, uh, to a large extent, at least, is implemented uh, in Prolog. So, of course, that in itself is fascinating. And also, you wrote a series of blog posts uh, recently. Uh, where you go into the history of um, of graph databases of different kinds mm. and um, the history of the semantic web yeah. and related things. So let me start start off with uh, one of the great quotes here from your from your blog posts that stuck in my mind. It is a sad testament to the suffocating nature of design by standards committee, which has consumed countless hours of many thousands of smart and genuine researchers, that ultimately the entire community ended up getting its ass kicked by a bunch of Swedish hackers with a bunch of JSON blobs. Yes. uh, The bunch of Swedish hackers are the Neo4j property graph guys yes who have had a greater impact upon the real world than the whole academic edifice of semantic web research okay so there's a lot in there <laughs> and um, what are the who are the different players here so yes so basically you know the semantic web as a movement came out of uh, tim berners lee uh, and was very much you know a big uh, hype thing in the early 2000s and there was quite, you know, there was quite a rush to standardize the web around that period. So there was like the standardization of RDF, the standardization of OWL. But a lot of these things, like my, I, I don't, I like standards. Standards are great things. But it, it, there's a, a thing about premature standardization. Like the time to standardize a thing is when people are using it in practice and hitting up against the limits or hitting up against mm-hmm. incompatibilities between different systems. Because at that stage, they kind of know what's important. The problem is if, you've got, if you're trying to kind of do it in advance of, of lots of people using it, the, the things you spend time on standardizing and the things that you think are going to be important features may not turn out to be. But the actual, in my experience of, of working with data for a long time, the, you know, the uh. difficult thing is to get all the data lined up and in the right shape and that you know what's there and that it, it validates. Once you have it there, you can do wonderful things with it. So I, I, the problem with the standards web is they were thinking of a future, uh, the, the, the standardization process here, they were thinking of a future where people were, inference was everything and they didn't appreciate the actual practical importance, you know, of of just that data validation step. And much later then, after people had used the semantic web quite a lot and, you know, been very frustrated because a lot of things that should be easy, you know, it made things that were impossible with other data, other kind of systems possible, but it made things that weren't easy but were possible and tractable with a relational database, for example, it made them very difficult. And so... And so I think the hmm. confusing part, sorry, the... I, like the confusing part here is, or one of them is, we're talking in the context of the web. Yeah. But most of the things we we have already gotten into here, I would say most people who think of themselves as web developers or doing anything with the web today mm. have probably never even heard of them. Uh, yeah. I mean, the things that you're talking about right now is not something that uh, really 
enters mm. the picture for most people working with the web. So yeah. So maybe we can step back and and just try to understand what the what what was this vision of the semantic web in itself. So, I mean, never mind the tooling and yeah, but. So, so it's really the overarching ju- goal. Yeah, it's really just better uh, inter-exchange formats between machines about data structures. People call it semantics, and semantics is itself a semantically difficult word uh, because re- <sighs> you know we're we're trying to we're trying to describe in a in a you know a, a machine and platform independent way the nature of data structures. You know, like uh, and data structures in the broadest sense because everything can be considered a data structure. So we have a data structure with a human and it has a role that it can, it has exactly, you know, two parents uh, and so on, you know. So it's, it's, and my interest in this actually came from the web. So I, I was one of the developers of uh, software that ran a thing called Indie Media back in the early 2000s. And back then, actually, you know, Semantic Web wasn't so distant from uh, web devs. And the, and the thing that got me looking at it was, I had just had this problem. I wanted to be able to, in the Indie Media Network, for example, we wanted to be able to exchange, you know, articles and content from between site to site, but everyone Mm -hmm. had their different way of, you know, marking them up or annotating them and so on. And so it was just one of these horrible, uh, you know, you had to do very custom Cody type of ugly transformations that were unmaintainable uh, at any type of scale. And so I just... I was looking for how can I have a ability to kind of send a description of a data structure or a data shape or some domain to a third-party machine and have that third-party machine be able to interpret it and do useful things with it. Uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and and so the, the, the competitors, uh, uh, still, there's not a lot, you know, it's, it's still amazing to me how little there is in that space because you have XML, uh, and XML is very, it's, it's not a very good, it, it, it was an evolved standard again. It, it's a document markup uh, format and it, it just has a whole bunch of things that aren't very good for, for actual abstract data modeling. It doesn't have any formal basis, you know, which is the, another thing I really like about the semantic web and particularly OWL that, you know, it's, it's a proper logic. It, it, you can interpret it mathematically, you can check it for correctness. Um, and you know right and and actually let, let me ask right there because um so to my understanding the semantic web i mean you described it now as uh, a kind of a series of standards for data interchange yeah. and and uh, and i'm sure that's right but it also seems like uh, not just any kind of data exchange but some kind of very rich yeah. automated self-documenting yeah. with reasoning built in yeah. uh, kind of approaching stuff that people had been doing in artificial intelligence in symbolic ai especially for for decades uh, i'm not sure i am i mean they must have been quite influenced by that research oh. but i don't know exactly how that happened oh no absolutely like to what extent they wanted to um, to make use of that kind of uh, automated reasoning and so forth. Oh no, completely. I mean, most of the impetus for OWL came out of the description logic community, and you know, there's a number of very well known and very accomplished uh, description logic people who were the main impetus behind all the good things that were in OWL. People like Peter Peter Patel Schneider and um, Harks in Oxford, um, and so there, it, it, 
you know, and th this is the great thing. This is why I love Owl. It's it's a properly thought out, well formulated, has really deep roots all the way back to the 60s, encapsulates a lot mm. of the frame logic, a lot of description logic stuff that had come bef before it. Uh, and, and, so, and so it's fantastic. Like the problem, as I say, the only problem with Owl is that mm. its use case only looked at the kind of the fancier stuff, the inference, and not at more of the meat and drink which uh, of data, which is just checking. Uh, to see if it, you know yeah. if there's mistakes in it, but it still is a, a vision that that you know with with if we go back and correct that, you know it's still unrealized. And the things you can do, if you can exchange uh, this type of rich format between machines and have them properly interpreted and have them being able to apply it to data coming from different sources, then it's just fantastic because. Uh, the, the amount of rich modeling information expressed in a mathematical language and mathematics is obviously, you know, it's the best of all forms of platform interoperability. It's the same, the right answer is the same everywhere. Right. So, so, you know, that promise, and this is really what we're trying to fulfill in Terminus DB. We're trying to kind of take all of that exciting good stuff, but put a, a manageable framework on top of it. It seems, uh, I mean, you point out many more subtle uh, difficulties or, or, or problems with these uh, standards mm. in your blog posts. But I guess one very simple one and that people like to make fun of the, the whole Semantic Web project is that it seemed to presuppose that people would be willing to add lots and lots of tags to their, like any web content. Like if you wrote a blog post, you wouldn't just make some markup to for styling but you would add lots of markup to make you know for every person you mentioned or anything you mentioned it would point to a canonical url uh, i mean is that is that fair and if so yeah is that really what they envisioned or or what how how did they imagine this would ever take to be as I understand, the vision is that eventually there would be so much rich data, so much tagged data, that that automated reasoning would be able to do all kinds of stuff for us. You know, find yeah. all kinds of, I don't know, uh, connections, configure things, whatever, you know, find the perfect flight ticket depending yeah. on all kinds of different criteria that you wouldn't even have to spell out. I mean, it seems when you're talking about Terminus DB, that's more of a controlled environment where you are actually investing in your data you know so it makes sense but for that to work across the whole web was that yeah at all realistic or oh, i mean what, i i think how? you're actually you're accurate i mean a lot of people did have those hopes for example you know a lot of things software artifacts that people put efforts into for example semantic wikis the basic model there is that people are gonna you know use it as a normal wiki but that they're gonna add markup and their basic model was also a lot of the time, it's going to be almost free form. They're going to be making up their own classes and properties as they go. And, mm -hmm. and the reality is, you know, uh, most people don't care. They, you know, they don't care that much that about machine interoperability that they're going to put the effort in and they don't know how. And if they do know how, they often make mis terrible mistakes. So you can't really use it because it's, it's, it's difficult mm -hmm. and subtle, uh, you know, description logics and first order logic and, and owl and semantics uh, in general. Very so. subtle. Uh, you, you mentioned one example and I'm sure the people who made that mistake were pretty sophisticated, but they uh, were using an, uh, I mean, hopefully we'll get a little bit more into the terminology and technology later, but mm. they were using uh, owl predicates uh, 
to um, point out uh, that two, let's see here, two things, two data structures are the same thing. Mm. Uh, but the standard didn't really, I mean, you can't really tell from the name yeah. of that predicate, but yeah. the standard didn't mean for that to be used for things that just happened to be the same real world thing, but yeah. they needed to be uh, structurally similar or, or exactly, exactly. Or something like that. So, so it's, 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 it's massively used, I'll say, as uh, massively uh, misinterpreted according to the semantic logic. And so therefore, uh, but it's also really useful, you know, it's it, in fact, the, I was talking to some of the guys in semantic arts who are, you know, very busy and active consultants in the area. Mm. And that's the the thing they want the most, because a lot of the time what they're using semantics for is to point to have uh, URLs, you know, a universal addressing addressable format to point when two different data structures and different part of a system are actually about the same real world thing so that they can, you know, perform, yeah. uh, merge the models of them and, and so on. So, so it's actually very useful, but, but it, it doesn't take, it's right. not actually a semantic thing. It's, it, it takes advantage of a, a well-known predicate and uniform and universal addressability of URLs to do a very useful thing in industrial data integrations. The, uh, but yeah, and so this is what happened, like the practitioners didn't you know because the standard didn't have a lot of the tools that they needed for that type of thing for the real practical stuff uh it, it they ended up people ended up abusing and misusing certain things which meant that then he couldn't mm. the machine automatic reading of these things no longer worked but the, the real the sad reality is it is actually a practically very technically difficult job to write a correct machine logic uh, interpretation of any type of domain. And therefore, in, instead of that, what you got was lots of effort that kind of hit up against semantic uh, barriers that you couldn't yeah. interoperate. And then lots of uh, research projects that put, you know, that produced resources that didn't, that, that went stale pretty quickly or, you know, didn't last beyond the lifetime of academic research projects. And so you, yeah. it just didn't work very well like that. And uh, it didn't I mean, the way I the discovered, uh, sort of discovered the semantic web stuff is um, reading papers and then checking out later papers by the same authors. And then you, you kind of noticed that at some point everyone started doing like adding the word semantic web yeah. <laughs> to their titles yeah and um and a lot of it seemed very uh you know genuine and and interesting but somehow and and it and it i, I remember having this feeling like oh they even built a tool or they built a you know some database or a format and maybe this format is the key mm. but then i mean this is just from a you know, a, a, an outsider coming in and having having a look, but still, it always seemed like nothing was quite usable or quite finished, or yeah, or or super hard to figure out. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, one of the things that a lot of people who come to the semantic web say, and, and I hear this all the time, is well, Outlook's very complicated. I'm just going to use ORDFS, which is ORDF schema language, which is much simpler. But the problem is, ORDFS doesn't really work. It was it was definitely badly thought out. Mm. It has a whole bunch of stuff that just make it unusable in practice. And so OWL is is the one that has the really strong basis, but it's very difficult to, very unapproachable because it's really written in a mathematical 
logic language. Uh, and then there's a whole plethora of other standards. Many of these like predate mm. L. So, for example, SCOS, the Simple Knowledge Organization System, is a kind of class-based hierarchical taxonomy that went with ORDF when it first came out, but was is completely subsumed by L, which does all those things much better. But it, it also it was out there, and there was vendors who who had solutions using SCOS. So it got full, and you know, it, if there's strong incumbent vendors in in um, standards committees. The standards committees almost always end mm-hmm. up uh, incorporating whatever their software is into the standards. So, so this meant you got a whole bunch of things in the W3C that are presented as you know a suite of standards or a stack, but actually they're all competing with each other and different. They wouldn't work with one another. They're complete. They're they're alternatives. One is better than the other, or is or is much more limited than the other. But they're not actually a stack. And 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 this that whole approach just makes it incredibly confusing for new people because uh, yeah. new standards are produced all the time and it, it, it there's a kind of marketing sheen as to how they fit together but in practice they don't really yeah yeah so the the title of the of your blog series is graph fundamentals yeah and um Um, I mean, I suppose graphs in general, but especially graph databases. Yes. And you point out there's two main varieties. Uh, the one that most people lately would have heard about are uh, property graphs. And then there is this thing called RDF stores, which uh, not many people hear about anymore. So, but which which is kind of plays a key part in the semantic web. So, could you give just a, a brief introduction here of what 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 is the relationship between these two, and especially what was or is the place of RDF stores in this whole vision of the semantic web? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. So, like, uh, so a graph database, uh, you know, the the only, the fundamental difference from a relational database, relational databases um, have links between tables. Uh, through foreign keys and uh, and so on. In a graph database, the, there is no tables and there's just links between the data. The fundamental difference there is that to make that work, you need you need to have each piece of data to be individually addressable, not via you know table column, but to have a a you know its own address. And so, like in the heart mm-hmm. of it, actually, you know, a well implemented graph database is a massive single relational table uh, with subjects, uh, predicate objects, uh, very, and, and all of the subject and object types can you know, point at other, uh, other triples. And then you have a load of indices in those, and then you, you know, you'd use all the same internal relational logic, but you don't have to go via mm. tables, and you don't have to make any of these joins explicit. It's just a, a certain subjects have the same IDs as certain objects, And and therefore you, your joins are kind of natural. So like the real kind of technical advantage, if you ask me, about graphs over tables is that you don't have to. You get automatic joins on IDs, and so you don't have to make those explicit. Uh, and that's just. So what you're saying now that that applies both to RDF stores and and um, yeah, property graphs. Exactly. Yeah. And and that are okay. well well implemented. Now I'm not sure. Like you'd have to look inside okay. to see how people implement things. So it's not it's not right. entirely obvious to everybody that you know a graph database is basically an implementation of relational logic. 
uh, in its own way. Uh, but but yes, this is very much the case in ORDF for every single triple. You know, it, it's there's nothing other than a graph structure all the way down to the atom level. It's subject, predicate, object for everything. So, so uh, and you, you know each each node basically all of its connections to other nodes just forms a natural graph which you can traverse. Uh, in property graphs, the unit, the, the node units are a little bit bigger. You have a kind of a JSON mm -hmm. blob uh, with pointers and other stuff. But again, you know, th those pointers are not so different than the foreign keys in relational uh, databases. It's just that they're not address, you know, you don't have to go via a table mechanism to address them. And mm -hmm. the property graph guys, uh, they have probably got, they're probably slightly more uh, ad hoc, I'd say, um, than the uh, RDF or even the relational database people. Uh, just because that's it, it comes out of much more hackerish and almost an anti uh, RDF thing where people are saying, "Well, this graph stuff is cool, but all these academics are, you know, talking about impractical stuff that I don't really care about. I'm right. just going to go out and make one that works." So those are the Swedish hackers yeah. that you mentioned, or that I actually from the quote that I read yeah, exactly. at the start, right? And and but I mean, and as you point out, so you in your blogs, you you kind of go through. Uh, many of the different ways that uh, uh, that property graphs are more ad hoc and mm. not founded on uh, logic, yeah. on any formal logic, and it, but at the same time, you you also point out that they actually managed to do what all those researchers and uh, RDF store implementers couldn't do, namely they actually made graph databases, yeah, a known concept, yeah, yeah, and they gave developers uh, tools that they could mm -hmm. use. You know, that's really what you're. You know, there's a, a purely abstract kind of academic thing of trying to make the perfect thing. I don't buy that at all. I, I mean, what we are trying to do, anyone who's trying to develop tech, if you're not trying to give devs or you know somebody who's working with tech, if you're not trying to give them better tools, then you're wasting your time, or you're, it's not a, an in, it's not something I'm interested in. There's nothing I hate more than writing code that people don't use. And there's nothing that makes me happier mm. than seeing somebody using my software without even noticing it because it's, you know, because it's, it's just a tool that they use that's useful. That's the greatest feeling in the world to me because, you know, I know yeah. uh, software and, and computers, you can, you can really do things that take a lot of drudgery out of people's lives. But, you know, web developers or developers, if they can't, if they can't effectively use your stuff, this, the problem is with your stuff or how you present it, it's not... The people are too stupid or lazy or anything like that, as as people right. sometimes imagine. That's the goal. Like you have to, you know, that is yep. where you want to get to, where you where you have to be to have a real contribution. I think. Hmm. So okay, so to start with RDF stores, uh, mm. you mentioned already they are based around this concept of a triple of predicate, mm. subject, object, and. Um, I don't know if you want to say something about how they emerged and and yeah. also talk a little bit about this this whole triple structure because uh, you mm. claim that it's a like the perfect unit of uh, knowledge. Yeah. Uh, this triple that two two is not enough and yeah. I suppose more than three is not necessary. So can you make us okay. understand how that is? Yes. So there there is like a mathematics of this uh, information density and. Um, but but really what it comes down to is the number of like so the complexity of your logical branching so so uh, so if you have for example a seven value logic uh, 
then um, two two layers down, you know, you've got forty nine combinations and you're lost. People can't can't reason over that those amount of branches. So if your basic kind of branching structure, your basic uh, if then else, you know, if it's ternary actually than binary, you actually get a you get a more uh, humanly compact logic structure because uh, binary just doesn't have enough. You you have to go too deep to express any complexity. Uh, I, I think the the actual the number for this is it's something like two point seven one is the kind of optimal information density for for, for <sighs> specifically those type of logical traversals. Uh, traversals. So something close, you know. And we always, I mean, I always notice in computer programming. I always wish there was, you know, we had a ternary operator rather than a binary operator because a lot of the time you want it true, false, or something else. <laughs> and actually, one of the first. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the first practical computer systems ever, Renfil in the Soviet Union, uh, was actually based on ternary logic. It wasn't like it wasn't completely obvious from the start that things were going to go binary. Uh, ternary was was also hmm. a player there, and a, a lot of you know binary is easier to make, easier to make gates and stuff like that. That's what caused it to win. But for humans, I think ternary is actually better. And when, but when it comes to triples, the whole the point here is that if you have a if you just have two things like. Uh, You've got two degrees of freedom, part one and part two, and they can vary any old way. It's just not enough to describe any of the type of things that you or you might want to describe. You have to bring in external information. You can't make it a self-describing system. Uh, whereas, suddenly, if you have just two, yeah, parts if you have to just the... two parts. So once you have three parts, mm -hmm. for example, all your predicates in RDF point at uh, their definitions. Uh, which you can't just do, you can't have that type of generality if you just have, you know, uh, key value, which is your, your two-part thing. Uh -huh. So uh, key value would be the, 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 the binary counterpart. The binary to, counterpart to key, to you know, value, uh -huh. property value, because the property then can, can vary completely, you know, and especially in RDF work, it actually points at the URL, which can have its definition. So you have that whole... You can actually express everything within that little system. Whereas if you have key value, something has to interpret what those keys and values interpret to, uh, you know, correspond to, or what type of real world things. Mm -hmm. Whereas once you have like total freedom in your property, uh, you can express everything within that system. You know, you can point out at the property definition, which can point at other stuff and so on. And so you can get a completely just without any external system. Once you have three three things that can vary independently. You can you can get a self-describing system, which you, it's just not possible with two, and so that's that's another you know a really beautiful thing about the triples that that you can it I mean, is possible to build these self-describing systems with them. It's uh, it, it is really hard to uh, convey this kind of thing uh, through voice only, but yeah. let's um, let's try with an example. Uh, so example triple would be. Felix lives in Sweden. So yes. Felix. Yes. Lives in. Yes. The the predicate and yeah. Sweden is the object here. Yeah. Okay. And so maybe if I'm just trying to run with what you just said, if we have mm. a key value store, mm. I would have to do something like just um, Felix yeah. colon Sweden yeah or, Sweden, or something and then you Felix to, colon in, oh I, I happen to know underscore Sweden <laughs> you know right yeah. 
And then someone or a program who interpreted that would have to know that, oh, okay, yeah. but in this particular namespace, we know that yeah. blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay, and you're saying if since we have this three-pronged structure, mm. you never run into that problem. Well, well you, it's not that you never do, but you can avoid it. Uh, and, and, and it's not just the you three prongs. And, and another part of the solution is that each of these three mm. is a URL. Yeah, exactly. Is that, and so they can yeah, point so to their definition. Point to a resource. Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. which could be anything. And which, for example, in, in, in your example, uh, Felix lives in Sweden. We would have lives in and we could look it up and it would say, okay, on the, on the, the subject of this is going to be a person. Uh, the right hand side is going mm. to be a geographical area and all of those things are their own uh, URLs that you could say okay you know well what is a person on this side and, and, and what is a geographical area and then you could you know you might have a taxonomy that told you that Sweden is a country and that's a type of geographical area and so you could uh, you can enmesh just from building up triples you can you can create all that wonderful self-describing system and the, it's not just right. that. And supposedly, this would all be in the semantic web vision. This would all be machine interpretable, yes. so that a computer could, just from a simple statement, could sort of have this whole rich context about what of all this means. Exactly. What all of this means. Yeah. And the thing is, it does work. It's just really difficult to provide high enough quality context for the computers. Uh, so that you know you can act, they can actually do it. The logic of the descriptions need to be correct, or and the, without a lot of tooling support to help human beings to actually describe that, yeah. especially closed world, it will tell you, hang on, wait a second, you've just broken your own model by putting you know something in that didn't work, mm -hmm. and that happens so often, even to us, you know, who work in this all the time. We just, you know, it's very difficult to keep a complex model logically coherent without machine support so mm -hmm. so that's that's the real thing that was lacking rather than the vision the vision is correct like once you have that type of system and the the metadata you're looking up is accurate you can do wonderful things you know to, to take you back to your example and where i think a lot of the semantic research went wrong about the expecting people to you know fill in the semantics themselves in in that world like what I consider you use semantics for is somebody comes along and, you know, they fill in a web form and they pull down Sweden. And so I have access to semantics in the hood and I can look it up and say that's a country and I can find the flag and I can do all of that without actually the computer knowing anything about Sweden or me programming any of it just by telling it, you know, countries are like this and they have flags and they have capitals and whatever. Just like Google do actually on their front page now for their knowledge graph. You know, it's fantastic. But, but, but the thing is, it, it's an expert delivered thing in practice. You know, the, the, the people mm -hmm. who write those systems uh, are not, it, it's not the every person. You're, you're using it to help the every person. So you can program computers that have really generalized knowledge about certain things and don't have to, you don't have to have a lookup table for exactly what Sweden is and so on. You just have a description of the world and they can figure it out. And so, so those things are fantastically good. But, the, but to me, they are for providing a better user experience and figuring out and providing better software without writing things explicitly, without writing general rules and allowing the software and the computers to figure it out, but not just dumping it back to the human and, and, and expecting that you're going to get high quality logic mm -hmm. out of them. Uh, so you need a lot of tooling yeah, yeah, and support. Exactly. Everyone does. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so to go back to graph mm. or what is more commonly known as graph databases yeah. or more correctly, I suppose, uh, property mm. graphs such as Neo4j, most famously, mm. uh, how do they differ from, from an RDF? I guess you're saying that RDF stores were the original graph databases, not necessarily just all better because of that, but, but uh, the term graph database is mostly associated with this thing called property graphs nowadays. So could you um, explain w- what the actual difference is between these two different kinds of graph databases? Yeah, I mean, the most important difference really is that the property graphs try to do a lot less uh, from the point of view of they don't really have schemata. They certainly don't have anything to do with, you know, complicated inference or strong logic. What they do have is the basic graph data structure with, you know, things that have that have pointers to other things and that, you know, anything in your database could point to it any other thing and you can put a label on that and say oh, this means mother and this one other pointer means father or this means you know brother and so on and why people like that is because it's a much more naturalistic way of modeling the world than tables having to deconstruct these things into relations uh, explicitly inside tables is, is an extra step of interaction from people's mental model of the world to the actual computer model of the world and so it, it, it can obscure the kind of overall patterns between or the, the connections between your objects in your data store and, and and that's why people like it and the other reason why people like it is because it has it doesn't have that many features the property graphs so it, it, they're quite easy for people to get up and running uh, it mm-hmm. takes a little while to get the idea of it but you can say get me that json Okay, I'm a web developer, I can read JSON, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, this is a pointer to another thing. I can go and get that thing, and now I'm, putting, I'm traversing the graph. So it's very easy, and, and they, put a lot, they put a lot less store into being you know, academically correct and a lot more effort into being usable by real people. And that's the important thing in the end. You know, it doesn't matter how good your tech or how fancy it is. If people, nobody else can use it, then it's not any use to anybody. Now, in the long run, of course, the sophistication is there for a reason. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not just because people like academic stuff. There, there's a whole bunch of huge advantages to the ODF and more data modeling over the property graphs. The, the thing about property graphs, you still have to, you've code. There's nothing in the graph really that tells you what how to interpret these different objects or what they are. They're just labels. They don't. And have... that's because they are not actually URLs, right? Right. Yeah, but also, yeah. so they are not based on this idea of triples that we talked about earlier, but rather yeah. uh, nodes and edges. Um, yeah, exactly. So a relation is one node and another yeah. node and an edge, but uh, that sounds pretty similar yeah. to a triple. I mean, how, it how is. is it really different? Okay, so, so, so there's so be, the URIs make a huge difference. Uh, for a start, because you can have external definitions right. and, and self-defining models. But but the but there's another thing, which is a triple is not just you know a data structure; it's a logical assertion. So they have certain qualities that are also very desirable in information systems. So if I say, uh, you know, um, Felix lives in Sweden, and I say Felix lives in Sweden again, it, it, that's a logical assertion that's repeated twice. So there's no point in having it's. It's as true if it's if it's said twice as if it's said once. So in general, you don't have any duplication problem. It doesn't right. matter in in ODF world, which is very very useful in a whole bunch. Like if you're loading, 
data into you know from external into a world it's very difficult to kind of look back to see what you've already got and so if you don't have that problem if every time you write a triple it doesn't matter if you've written before it makes it a lot simpler the other thing that triples have that a lot of people don't get or that we didn't get actually when we started on this journey is it makes revision control it makes uh, uh, revision control databases possible uh, you can't. It's too complicated, I think, or it's incredibly complicated to do revision control operations. You know, save your history and 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 have different branches and stuff like that of a da- of data. If you're trying to do it in anything else other than RDF triples, and the reason being is so in a revision control system, you never change the data. It's always immutable. You're just changing the deltas on top. This change. This change. This change. Uh, and you have to take things away and add things on in each layer on top to, to, to create that kind of immutable data structure where things are changing, but, but, the, but the entire history of, of all the events that led to, to the current state is retained. And the reason for this is if you, if you say, okay, I have a state in my database in, in, in time T and it goes to T plus one, and there were some changes in between the, those two states, Okay, in RDF land, you can always just say these these triples were taken away and these triples were added. That's the only language you need to to uh, express deltas between entire database states. So so that's another kind of bonus for RDF is that atom of knowledge. You can actually uh, it's it's it, it's expressive enough, you know, mm-hmm. including changes to schema. These guys were taken away and these guys were added. And if you try to do the same thing in an SQL table or even in a property graph. You're just into these incredibly complicated things. Okay, well, this table was taken away. Three columns were added. Uh, you know, a foreign key was added somewhere else. And so your delta language is just going to be, it's just going to, it's it, it, unmanageable, I'd say. I've actually seen that. that th- I've actually seen that very thing uh, being described as a, as a benefit of property graphs that uh, each relation has its own ID and it can have rich, uh, like a whole data structure associated with it, which means mm. every, so every, okay, so in our example here, Felix in Sweden. So I actually lived in Sweden several times, let's say, because I lived somewhere yeah. else in between. And um, mm. they claim that the, it's very natural because you can just have two different uh, arcs going between Felix and Sweden or two different edges mm. and they and they each have mm. their own structure so they can have their own start and end date for example or what have you and they have their own ID whereas mm. uh, in an RDF store you would have as I understand it you would have to use a predefined predicate such as lives in and then you can since that doesn't have yeah. any extra data associated with it you're kind of stuck with just having that once yeah. so, and, so they think that I, that yeah. is a a benefit of of the other paradigm of the of the property graphs but you're saying this is yeah mm-hmm. well well I, I mean this is this is a confusing and confused uh, type of area because definitely it's true okay you can because you're you're you've got a kind of json lump and it can have lots of uh, things coming out of it and edges themselves kind of annotations so you can have, you know, lives in, which is annotated by time span and stuff like that. Now, th- wh- why it's confusing is because uh, RDF itself uh, does not have any capacity to do that. But RDF is, is a very low level triple language. Uh, and so people try and get around that. Uh, people who just have kind of vanilla RDF stores 
by using a, a RDF star, which is annotating each triple and trying to extend it that way. But but that's that's a very poor solution, if you ask me. Like, and mm-hmm. the the thing is, you need owls. So in an owl, it's trivial. So you can what you, what you do in owl is you just create a class which is you know temporal residence, and you and that's just another class. And you can connect Felix has temporary residence, and the temporary residence object you've got two of them that you point to, and one of them says Sweden and this date, and the other says Sweden and this date. So. So all of that, you know, if you can form higher level data structures to represent, um, you know, relations, which you have to do anyway, you know, to represent relations with, uh, with annotations or with temporal boundaries or anything uh-huh. like this, it's, it's, it, you can do the same thing and you just need to be able to, to, uh, b- to describe composite data structures. And, and ORDF itself is the kind of is the low level language. It's just really about triples. OWL and ORDFS and stuff like that. They give you all those composite structures. The problem being that, you know, in particular with OWL, which gives you them in spades, you can describe these things in wonderfully uh, wow. uh, efficient ways. They have they have qualified temporal constraints and stuff like that. You can put in and describe uh, things wonderfully efficiently. It's just that. Uh, very few, or there's almost none of the vendors of, of triple stores really implement OWL or any very good high-level structures. So it's Ye- an unfulfilled promise. Mm. Of, yeah, it's an unfulfilled kind of promise. But, well, it's not. It's been fulfilled now with Terminus TV. Right. So we can do all of this mm. stuff in, in spades. So, so, for example, we helped out with the uh, SESHAS Global History Data Bank, and that's the most, every single uh, fact basically is constrained by uncertainty, uh, it can have a temporal range, which is this was true sometime between this time and this time. Mm-hmm. It can have, you know, uh, uh, various annotations to say this fact is uncertain. So each factoid in the entire thing is is an incredibly, you know, complex annotated thing. And you build those up from, you know, RDF at the base, but structures to represent those things described as L classes. And then, you know, relations between them, which are also our classes. So would you say that that uh, for a developer using uh, Terminus DB uh, wouldn't really think so much in terms of RDF triples, but more in, in, in terms of this richer language yeah. of uh, OWL? Actually, we, I don't think we, yes. uh, we haven't really defined or explained exactly what OWL is. O-W-L where it comes from, yeah. and could you give a brief introduction? Because we're talking about it so much. Yeah, exactly. So OWL actually stands for the Web Ontology Language. And why it's it's called uh, OWL rather than WAL is one, it, it's, there's an apocryphal story about it being a joke uh, from Winnie the Pooh and it originating in Oxford that Winnie the mm-hmm. Pooh, they couldn't spell OWL, so they called mm-hmm. it WAL, so they took that joke. But I'm not sure if that's actually the reason. But, but, but it, it basically is the top of the range W3C standard for describing um, uh, complex classes. It's a first order logic um, that is, is therefore very, very, very expressive. It's formed on the basis of, of you know, uh, set theory. Mm-hmm. So, so a class is described as a set of things with a certain property, but it, it allows you to do things that are incredibly, incredibly useful and difficult to do in other worlds. Uh, uh, multiple inheritance is, is the greatest of them all, if you ask me. So you can just have a whole lot of classes like Swedish is the class, Irish is the class. And, you know, then your objects can just inherit from whichever of those classes they want. To me, that's the biggest advantage of, of the world of OWL. You've got these classes that are well-defined, can have properties, 
Uh, you can have you know rules on what type of things hang off those properties. You can have, and then you can have lots and lots of of extra stuff about inference as well. Now, I, I you know I've I've focused more in this conversation on the schema and the validation, mm-hmm. and and that was introduced into W three C via Shackle, and it was done like fifteen years late and not at all properly, and they should have done it the first time. And, and, and but but they they recognised that. But 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 the but the, but the thing to get is inference is also magic, and it's magic in a in a very practical way for database people. Uh, and the example, the easiest example is so I have a database full of uh, you know properties between people and their parents. Okay, now I want to also ask this database about uh, grandparents. Okay, so what I can do is I can either add some coding logic to say okay two-parent hop means a grandparent, and put that in code, and, write, and, and that's fine. But really, that's taking intelligence out of the database and putting it into code, and, and the more intelligence you can put into the database, the more valuable it is, because it's, it's way, less, uh, way less difficult to interrogate and uh, analyze mm-hmm. than code is, which is you know, completely uh, obscure, or a lot of it is obscure to <laughs> automated analysis. And, mm-hmm. and so... When you, when you have something like you want to do this, you can either then write a, a, another predicate into your database that says grandfather, okay, and you connect all those together, and then you can ask it, and they're all in there. But then you've got duplicate data, which is also a terrible thing. You, you've got something that you could calculate from something else, and therefore if you delete one and not the other, everything's inconsistent. So what an, a, an inference, an inferred property like this makes you do, you can just say, okay, a grandfather is a thing that the database knows, or grandparents that is the is two hops of parentship and that's just a rule across all data so you ask the database for grandfather and it gives you or grandparents and it gives you it back exactly as if that data was actually written into the database as right. if you had that data you, you don't know from the outside and it's just generated it so and this so is similar the, i guess the closest thing in uh, regular uh, relational sql based databases mm. are views yeah, so it, it probably comes down to uh, sql and the relational paradigm is a little bit limited in what kind of yeah. relations you can describe. Uh, well, you also, cannot, uh, because of the table form, you have to squish everything into a table and define what that table is rather than just having general rules and whenever they hit a thing, they're applied, you know? Right. You, it's, you can't really write a view that could like be applied to any table. Like, yeah, uh, exactly. You, you have yeah. to write one per table. Yeah, so comes down yeah. to general but but also the sort of i guess the classical example is a uh, transitive closure so if you yeah. want to tra- tra- traverse that uh, if we build on your example uh, you want to get all the ancestors of a person i mean you can do it in in sql these days but um, it's sort of a later addition onto the basic you mean the syntax the, yeah. the the, the well the what is it? The with is, with syntax? Yeah, uh, with with exactly. With yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, common table expressions, they are called, uh, yes, which is hard to remember. Yeah. So, but but, yeah, but the, it. it comes down to you can actually do recursive queries, yeah. but um, graph databases are, to a big extent, optimized around doing that kind of queries. And at least in the case of yeah. something like Neo4j, I suppose they actually have a lot of graph algorithms built into the core of the database, so that. Yes. Uh, I mean, so that's just one. That's just one side of things is the performance. But mm. since they're optimized mm-hmm. for that kind of query, 
I suppose, yeah. to get much better performance. But then there is also, yes. I guess, the th sort of thing that you have been talking more about, which is the modeling paradigm, uh, mm. how natural it feels to yeah. model our view of the world to the database. Yes. And um, I, I suppose I personally, well, since I haven't actually used a graph database, I shouldn't make a comparison, but um, mm. I think... Um, putting things into tables and it's it's i mean it, it it makes you analyze your model uh, which is always a good thing mm. and i think it has also been well understood you know f for a very long time that you need uh, to have a distinction between your conceptual schema and your actual database schema mm -hmm. um, i'm not sure i experienced that as a problem um, I mean, may, I'm just trying to make you kind of more point out where the pain points might be. Yeah. So, so, uh, um, so yes. So, so just uh, to talk about the queries and the recursive queries, uh, what you say is definitely true. So our first, so our first implementation of Terminus, uh, probably about three and a half years ago, uh, we tried to do it inside of Postgres using the, um, mm -hmm uh recursive uh cte stuff there and basically it was and we were the reason we were we were trying to do this is we had a graph that we were trying to find shortest uh paths in which is a very you know complex recursive mm -hmm. algorithm on very large it's not a complex algorithm it just takes a long time on mm -hmm. um on very large graphs we had like two billion nodes or something all of poland's commercial history and we we're trying mm -hmm. to find interesting connections between various people and so and it basically it, it, there was no, we figured out uh, after we built it that there was no possible way that Postgres was ever going to be able to do this, and the reason is quite subtle actually. It's because the architecture uh, blows out the cache all the time, uh, mm -hmm. so every time you kind of come back from code to uh, to the database, it's it loads a new page, and what you can do when you do it inside a graph and that that's that's optimized for that. Is is you can basically load all the close connections into memory in, in one go, and so it, it turns out like what really makes it fast is that you're you're actually doing most of the traversal in L1 cache, uh, which is like four or five orders of magnitude or no three orders of magnitude faster than main memory, but like in, in like a lot or a lot faster than disk. I mean, I, 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 I guess we could get very deep into uh, technicalities, but it just that just sounds yeah. like a very hard problem itself since, I mean, the topology of the graph could be just anything. It could be very connected. So to be able yes, to but, load but up all the... the mm -hmm. But you know in advance uh, who's connected to who because, because everybody's got these universal IDs. So it's actually not that hard because you just line them up so there's, you know, the, the densest connection, connect, interconnected guys sit beside each other and you can just count that. You right. know, and you, you can actually have that in your index, in your, in your kind of storage scheme. Uh, and that, just that, and you, as I say, the, then the computer magic takes over. You don't because you don't actually get to tell the computer what to load into the cache. It just loads those pages. So if you pre-build the pages with connected guys sitting beside each other, then you just get really good performance. Okay. Uh, so, so, so yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So that's um, that's the performance side, and then mm. let's talk a little bit more about because I know you care a lot about and you talked about the modeling side. 
I very much agree with you that uh, it's really important to model, to kind of build clear models that reflect the way we think about the mm. world. And and I've heard other proponents of graph databases say the same thing that you know the relational model kind of forces us to put everything into this mm. constrained format and then you have mm. to write a lot of uh, manual joins which mm. i mean many of the other things we're talking about here i certainly see the point uh, the value of having a mm. you know a first order logic to reason about your data and stuff like mm. that but i guess i don't fully buy that point um i'm not sure yeah is it so constraining to put things into well Okay. Tables. So, because so the, because you could say the same thing about having to break them down into these triples, which you also said are yeah. quite low-level things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you can kind of get things to write the triples for you wherever possible. You know, oh. you can you can write the higher-level things, the classes and stuff, and let right. the computer write the triples. But but yeah, I I completely take your point. When I start, uh, and I think that the point is quite subtle, and it's 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 often. People, uh, people uh, beat up on you know normal form modeling in SQL way more than they should because even with a um, when I'm modeling graph stuff, I start off with basically E or D because what you want to know always, always, always in uh, is what are the relations between things and what mm. are the cardinalities on those E R D the, the, the entity relations. relation diagrams so boxes relationship and lines diagrams that are traditionally used for SQL modeling and it's it, it you know. And and that level of modeling, I think, is great. You know, it's you, you, what are my entities? How, how are they related to one another? What is what are the rules for the cardinalities between those relationships? Like, how many mothers can you have? How many bank accounts can you have? How, is can there be two people to that? That's the data modeling world. That's the most important thing. If if, if and that's a kind of technology independent thing. So if you go from a good ERD model, okay, to an owl. And not just RDF, okay, because RDF is not good enough for mm -hmm. this. It, it, it's too low level. If you have classes and stuff, you can basically just take that ERD model and directly write the L. You don't have to think anymore. You've just got all the things, this card now, this goes from that to that. You don't have to break it down any further. In, in SQL, you do have to figure out, uh, like, okay, I'm going to take this little, or these properties that hang off this guy and, you know, flatten that out into a table that it can point at. So you've got, an, to me, you've got an extra step there that I don't have to do in the L. You do the same kind of entity relationship, get your cardinalities, understand how all the properties, because that's, that's the important one, you know. Uh, but it, to me in SQL, then there's a breakdown and break back up to get back to that kind of picture that is, is less of, a, of a, an issue in the L world because, you, you've, you know, you can just form them as the objects that you've defined and not have to kind of say, well, which table does this go in? Because, you know, just by giving it the correct ID or the correct property name, it's already going to be lined up correctly. So it's just that. Now, the other thing is, is much more subtle. And, and actually, you see this in practice all the time. So OWL and TerminusDB has object hierarchies. And this is a beautiful thing for efficient, uh, you know, you have a person and, and you, they have all these properties. And then you have an Italian person, a Swedish person, and they've got two properties that are different. Okay, If you try and model that in, in an SQL way, you've no ability to do that hierarchical type of thing. And what people often use is, is, you know, they will describe it as if they had a hierarchical model and then use magic values. You know, if there's a two in here, that means mm -hmm. uh, that means, you know, they're Italian. And then you look them up in the Italian table for the other properties. And, you know, if, if you've got just a flat object structure with things and you have to turn them into relations, that's fine. You know, it's only a very small technical step to go from the ORD to, 
to the flat relations and you know i wouldn't complain too much about that and it's often good for discipline anyway to make sure you're right mm-hmm. about your uh, cardinalities but it's 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 the fact that then you know the world's more complicated than that lots of these things have actually you know they actually have shared properties and you don't want to duplicate them everywhere so you end up coming up with a something that is kind of in between an interface and inheritance model but supported by kind of magic properties that you know pointed at stuff or magic values in uh, columns you know if it's a one here then that means this person's italian and the code knows that that means i have to look up the italian table yep. for the extra yep. italian properties and and people i mean i i spend a lot of time looking at uh nowadays looking at, you know, we do a lot of data integration work in old db2 databases and people have put huge efforts into trying to make their data model elegant and express all of those things and not have duplicates but it's just impossible to interpret because the meaning of a lot of these columns isn't there in the database you've got to know that the two here means you look up that other table and right. there's no real way of expressing that in the data model and, and and the reality is the world has a lot of that in it so so so, so to me that you know there is a, as i say i th- think there is an ex, an ex, slightly slight extra technical step in turning things into relations from the owl objects but but that's not a huge deal the huger deal to me is you, you know it's not rich enough to and and taxonomy to me is is the number one thing you want not you know we can talk about ontologies or hierarchies or class hierarchies but just the taxonomy you know that's how humans organize the world. You know, we have plants and minerals and animals at the top and we generalize based on those. It's a plant, it's not going to talk to me uh, and so on. And, and so Just having th- that capacity in your data structures uh, to define uh, those type of hierarchies just means that everything's going to be more elegant over time. Right, got it. Yeah. So to come back to the, to this other aspect of OWL, uh, which is a reasoning, and you, you said it's based on first-order logic. Um, mm. uh, since this is a primarily a podcast about logic programming, would you say something about how this is similar or dissimilar or related to something like Prolog or, or, yeah, or, yeah. Other, so, or other, or, or, or perhaps even more data log, which is something I haven't really talked about on the podcast, but... It's a sort yeah. of data-based-oriented so, uh, style of logic programming. Yes. So these things are incredibly, incredibly uh, closely aligned. Uh, so, for example, the Swirl, the semantic web rule language, is basically a data log, uh, which is you know a, a kind of constrained prologue, uh, specifically for reasoning over data structures. Now, we kind of went beyond that, ourselves and we have a full prologue or in fact a a constrained prologue within logical rules but i don't know why like prologue suffered for some reason a big fall from grace through the Hmm. 90s and 2000s and people were trying to reinvent stuff in xml because a lot of that swirl (laughs) and stuff was written in rdf xml which is horrific and so they had the same or almost the same semantics or almost the same uh, capacity is because Swirl is essentially a data log, but they were written in this horrific way that nobody could understand and that there was no tooling for. When Prolog is sitting there and you know has had decades of research and you know people have figured out a lot of how to do things, but it ju- I think it was just fashion, you know, I think it was just not in fashion at all at yeah. the time, and therefore people wanted to go to new webby stuff. 
and the, uh, this was a tragedy because a lot of the uh, you know prologue had, had worked out a lot of the problems that a lot of these implementations ran into uh, and you know but unfortunately uh, uh, that that was how it is and when we came to uh, our very first uh, prototype of uh, terminus TV which is like five or six years ago now we started out with we with the Jenna Java uh, li library for semantic web, and, and we so Jenna is some out. kind of um, reasoning engine on top of yeah, the, and it's written in right. Java, uh, and right. we d looked at it and tried to kind of make this thing work, and we just realized that basically because the Java class structure doesn't allow you to do you know its class hierarchy doesn't allow you to kind of map on logical classes at all. So all you're really stuck with doing is building a really crappy prologue inside a Java class <laughs> in, a, in some type of, you know, domain-specific language. And that's what they all do. And you're just like, this is insane. There's all this kind of boilerplate stuff. And all you're, re you're trying to do is get to somewhere where you can, you know, write a logical constraint language, but you can't do it in Java. And, and, and prologue was sitting there. And so we took this away uh, after, you know, a, a bit of effort. And then the prologue development of our kind of of our logical schema checking stuff, which was our first big implementation in, in, in the program, was just incredibly, incredibly uh, easier and mm. faster and better. The computer was not fighting against you. The computer was for you. You could just you could tell it logical rules and it would help you rather than, you know, rather than you having to turn mm -hmm. off all the mm -hmm. language features and not use inheritance because it didn't work properly and stuff like that that you have in most of the other imperative programming languages so like i yeah prologue is is it's is a superpower in, in a number of things any type of reasoning any type of logical frameworks any subsumption it's it's just got all those things built in but not just that parsing prologue is a wonderful parsing machine right. for uh, you know parsing just text or regular expressions or whatever the hell you want it's incredibly uh, easy relatively speaking to write a parser and prologue. And then as a query language, of course, like so Wackle, which is our, if for terms DB, the web object query language, is, is it's not exactly prologue because it's more constrained and it, it has all these schema enforced rules, but basically it, it works on the principle of unification, hmm. um, which is the most useful thing in the whole world that you, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you can put a variable into a slot and it will give you all the possible answers for that thing. And yeah. you, put a, you put a constant into it, and it won't. It'll just give you the one answer. And so in writing, in, in writing a query language, being able to just basically get all the things by putting a variable where you had a constant is the most amazing thing. It means you can actually write query libraries, uh, for example, that if you, pass them, if you pass them no arguments, they give you everything. If, yeah. you, if they pass, you can, and then you can set any of the arguments and they give you all of one of those things. So you kind of get an API in a box, you know, you just say, well, this is the query and it's got all these variables and you can pass these variables in from the outside. And so it's, a, it's you know, a single query can do all the different use cases of any combinations of those things. So with unification, yeah, it's, it's just a fantastic facility for efficient writing of queries. And, mm. and it's also quite simple, I find, you know. I think uh, people who come to computers for the first time find uh, prologue inference uh, or, you know, inference in prologue or unification, they find this easier to get than imperative yeah. stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's the point I come back to. It's uh, j- just to take <laughs> a simple thing like the equals sign. Uh, in Prolog, yeah. it actually means what you what what everyone thinks it means, and what programmers yeah. think an equal signs mean is something weird, something value assignment, different. exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but so does this mean that you in Terminus DB you you created this uh, your own query language? Um, because it sounded mm. like when you explained about Owl earlier that it comes with a whole kind of a, a reasoning language. Um, yeah. Is that does so, that mean that you sort so of the magic uh, web and owl mm-hmm. sorry that you added your uh, or you know your or deviated from that somehow or is it just another layer yeah yeah as I was saying earlier the semantic web has a, a stack of standards that are not very self consistent you know mm. they've come in from different places and they're not really so the semantic web query language is a thing called Sparkle and it it really doesn't know about owl which is kind of which is a tragedy it it just is a is a pattern matcher over triples so the problem here is we have al which is wonderful language uh we have an ability to implement in prologue and we have this query language that doesn't actually take advantage of any of the facilities of that i want to be able to say give me everything that's a subclass of fruit in a single query and Mm -hmm. if i tell my database that there's this taxonomy inside it should be able to figure that out for me and bring them back and so that's one of the things, for example, we have in Wackle, you know, subsumes as a, as a thing. Mm-hmm. Give me all things that are subsumed by this logical expression, actually, uh, not just a class. Uh, and, and that's incredibly useful because basically your query language is taking advantage of the data modeling and you don't have to tell it all the rules. It takes, you know, it's, it's, it's a little different, but it's massively easier to use than, uh, than Sparkle is. Uh, and that's because the, the basic idea of unification is is so powerful and quite a simple one. And just with yeah. two, you know, we have these triple pattern matching things. So with, with one triple, you know, just with one triple, you can say, give me everything in the database, you know, VV yeah. variable in all three parts. You right. can say, you know, give me all subjects in the database, give me all properties, give me any of those two combinations, just with one single triple pattern matching. And then once you get conjunction involved, with just two triple pattern matches, give me all of those, you get all those combinations and you can constrain any of them to, you know, it should be a subclass of this or it should be whatever. So two triples, you know, you, 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 that combination using unification, the, the approach from Prologue, the amount of semantic richness you can get into just patterns of two triples is incredible. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about this whole concept of uh, semantic technology. So uh semantic it's kind of this word it's used in many different contexts in computing mm. semantic parsing uh you know semantic web so forth and it's one of those words it sounds like a cornerstone of some you know advanced knowledge but then when you start to investigate it seems it's it's just ill defined it can mean yeah. very different things in different contexts and it's supposed to mean that you somehow get below the surface of of just structure or, or, or syntax, but what yeah. that so for a formal language, we have a clear understanding of how to separate syntax and and semantics. But for human language and human thinking, I think it's much more. No one can really define what would be a semantic layer. Often, it just means we have more data, more structure, 
<laughs> but it's just it's still mm-hmm. just structure. So yeah, so, so I mean I would just like to hear your views on this really what is actually the idea of a semantic computing? So uh, I would agree with you that you know the the first th- the first rule of semantics is that it's ill-defined and that people use it in different senses. And secondly, as well, actually, in the semantic web community and in a lot of this stuff, like people spend a lot of their time talking about syntax rather than actual semantics or, yeah. you know, it, it, but but there also there is, you know, in, in a very formal logic where it's mathematics, you have that clear definition, as you say, but anywhere outside of that, it, it, it's, you know, when do you go from a syntactic specification of a thing to that giving you an extra semantic capability is, is ill-defined. But but if it is to have any meaning, I think, and uh, you know, words, natural language words, they they don't have precise meanings, but they do have some meaning because you know they, they make people think of a of a common concept. And with semantics, I think it's the uh, to to have any kind of claim to being a semantic system, the system has to operate on the basis of combining, you know, general rules uh, for uh, that mm-hmm. you know say okay, there's this type of instance happen. I have a general rule for that type of instance. The data structure is, is that type of thing, rather than being programmed for the very specifics of what comes in. So the responses comes from understanding and combining general rules that apply to classes of stuff, classes of event types, classes of data, looking at those rather than actually having it hard-coded into you. Like, you know, uh, uh, event code 53C, you do <laughs> this response. Do you have perhaps some, or you could make up some kind of benchmark for what would be, what would qualify as a semantic system? I mean, you you just kind of sketched it out, but perhaps some more yeah. concrete benchmark or something. Um, I mean, I would say you know my benchmark for most people to say their systems are semantic, it's it's there's no real truth to it. It's marketing. They might have some kind of higher level model but it's still a very specific model and their code only knows exactly about that model and how it to apply it to lower things so uh, you know i think real semantic systems that operate like this at industrial you know google's knowledge graph probably has a lot of that actually they're probably Mm -hmm. automatically eating uh, a lot of data according to general rules maybe Uh, but but it's more these things are they live more in promise than reality a lot of the time Mm. um it's it's one of these problems that you have to get very good before you're good enough to to you know to to reach zero versus the the guys that do it in, in great low level detail because you know the world is very detailed and so you're your general model and and the accuracy of that model has to be very good before it can get up to something that you can right uh, i mean i, I guess that's goes. something that's just recurring in the history of uh, artificial intelligence knowledge uh, representation and so forth is yeah. how quickly you you realize that you need all of kind of common sense knowledge common sense reasoning yeah. just all, all of this very detailed presuppositions about the world uh, you know just small conventions between people all, all kinds of stuff that that seems irrelevant at first but it's kind of that is the whole substrate uh, i mean if there is a semantic substrate that's probably it where all of these other more abstract concepts that seem so 
suitable for computers, but they are actually somehow embedded in that whole kind of mesh of knowledge. But so, um, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know if you agree, but but that seems not that's not very practical if you want to implement a database, but you still want yeah. to go to this kind of a richer representation. So, I mean, what is a good balance to strike? What is a reasonable ambition? Well, well, you know, in terms of CV, we're really trying to answer that question in in code in reality, and. For me, it's okay. Semantics and and logic, uh, programming, and having uh, models that you can reason over. Uh, this is uh, this is the future. But to make that a reality, you you need to put a, almost all your effort actually into testing, uh, checking, uh, constraint checking, making sure that things meet requirements and. Once you put ninety percent of your effort into there, then you can start to get the benefits. And to me, that's that's been a lot, the stuff people try to run before they could walk in semantics mm. a lot of the time. Uh, and so, we've really put a huge amount of effort into that. Okay, uh, into helping users to, you know, to, to maintain a good data model and not break the r- rules of of the logical world. Uh, so that they can get the benefits of the reasoning and the semantics on top, um, and and so uh, I I think you know uh, these systems are rarely realized, but they are the dream, and we all know they're 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 what we need. They, we all know this. Anyone who works with computers know we do we do spend hmm. our time doing stuff that computers should be able to to know how to do this. Oh, yeah, you know yeah. they're quite mechanical, if, and if we had good ways of describing those things. And machines that could understand those general patterns, we wouldn't have to write all this uh, boring and repetitive low-level stuff that people spend a lot of their time doing. So, for I think my last question would be: um, I mean, you clearly uh, are a believer in the future of graph databases, and I mean, you stated as much on on in your blog. Uh, But how about Mm. this wider? vision of the semantic web i mean how much of that do you think is still interesting or or has a future so i think i mean i think it it massively has a future in a, in a more constrained way i think the ability for people to build you know their own uh, models of their own domain in, in these type of more abstract uh, reasonable over computer interpretable ways is fantastic and then Having that on two sides gives you the ability to do integration better, you know, but it, it's it's much more constrained vision as in we don't want to run before we can walk. So you have to start you don't have with to a, 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 like a world. semantic organization inside your organization uh, and then maybe at some point we will have a semantic web once there is enough yeah. kind of local semantic yeah. context. Exactly, and one of the things we're trying to do with Terminus DB is so we're we're just in the trials periods, which is of uh, Terminus Hub, and the the idea there is that it basically uh, has a whole lot of, of of Terminus databases that you can clone, uh, but that you can also you know push and pull to and set up communities and organizations where you share artifacts and people try to uh, you know build better domain models in different areas. And, you know, then it's most, mostly open, of course. And so you can take right. models and databases uh-huh. from other areas and try and integrate them with yours all in this kind of 
with within a, a world where you've got tools to make sure you don't break them, as in you know determinist da database yeah, yeah, yeah. schema engine, and and so I can see I can see that uh, where I really hope that works because I know, you know, the, the world of data modeling and the ability to exchange and share and work together on complex artifacts is not there at the moment. People all people are interested in data modeling, are kind of isolated, and the the thing about data modeling is. It's always better as a team sport uh if other people can say well actually you know should that really should not be that cardinality because sometimes mm -hmm. they use two of those in the real world all those type of things that's it's that living aspect that that you know technology needs to improve like a lot of the early semantic web stuff was just kind of dumped in the internet here's a perfect vision and didn't have those ability to kind of uh, refine it over time or have different perspectives yeah. come in. And, you know, I suppose this it. addresses one of the big weaknesses that you point out is that um, if you want to rely on any of those ontologies that were <clears throat> created by various academic groups mostly, uh, mm. their funding has usually long since run out. And so you can find yeah. that ontology, but no one is really maintaining it. And so, yeah. yeah, so so it sounds like that's what you're trying to address by creating exactly. some kind of yeah. GitHub for uh, semantic yeah. data. Yeah, for semantic mm -hmm. data and semantic models. And, and you know, the, the big advantage here is that you can press a button and, you know, somebody else can share their database with you and you can press a button and it spins into life and it just reads all the other classes and makes all those structures and builds tables for you and so on. So it's like it takes advantage of the facts that it knows all terminus data databases are, are are schema checks and so it can it can run all of this generic generation code over mm -hmm. them and and so you can you just you can go from zero you can basically eat somebody's database and all their modeling work and, and see it right in front of you just like that and, and maybe you just want to say oh look uh, now i'm starting from uh you know somebody haven't already built a similar thing and i actually have to tweak it uh, I don't, uh, so that's to me a, just a massively better ramp up to the whole experience of, you know, step one empty database. And yeah, yeah. Here's yeah. a really complicated world about data modeling. Or or, uh, show, or show downloading a huge rolling. XML dump yeah. and trying to understand what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So. so tell us a little bit. Well, where can we find out more about Terminus DB and uh, yourself? And um, if there's anything else you want to add before we wrap up. Then go ahead. Yeah, so, so terminusdb.com, uh, and we have a community section with a discourse and a, a Discord server, which is, you know, we're always hanging out and, and happy to chat with people. Um, and, you know, we're, we're active all over the place on Twitter and Medium. Um, and we go to a lot of meetups, and, you know, we have a lot of enthusiastic, or not that many, but, but a small team of enthusiastic coders. We're into Prologue, uh, Rust, so Terminus Hub uh, and TerminusDB.com. And as I say, TerminusDB, I encourage anyone to download it, have a look. It's uh, a labor of love for us. It's, uh, and it's rapidly approaching a, a stage where it's quite robust and solid. So it's taken us a while to get there. And, you know, we're, we're rapidly iterating on it. But, but the real thing is, is the collaboration. So hopefully uh, every, anyone who listens will have a look. And, you know, if they like it, stick around. For sure. Listeners, please check out Terminus DB and Terminus Hub. And Kevin, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. 
It's been a my pleasure, real, Felix. Really Thanks very much. With you. Yeah, really good talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Kevin Feeney. Lots of deep stuff in there. One of the biggest takeaways for me is the point Kevin made about the tension between hard coding knowledge and encoding it in a general way that allows a computer to use it in a more flexible manner and combine it with knowledge from other sources. As Kevin says, it takes some time to catch up with the hard coders when you choose to build up a base of general knowledge and rules. But that generality and depth will then let you do completely new things. And that, I think, is really what that vague word semantic is supposed to convey. I also think this episode shows some of the deep connections between databases in general and logic programming. As Bob Kowalski said in our very first episode, Prolog is in some ways really closer to the database tradition than to other programming languages. As I mentioned in the intro, Terminus DB has gone through some changes since this conversation took place. First of all, Kevin is no longer part of the day-to-day development of Terminus DB because he left the company which is behind that project some time ago. And secondly, Terminus DB is no longer promoting OWL as the way to define rich database schemas because the team found that most users had a hard time wrapping their heads around OWL despite all the good things Kevin had to say about it. Terminus DB now has a document abstraction on top of its graph core and a JSON schema interface with uh, which forms a subset of OWL. All of this with the goal of offering the power of graphs with the simplicity of documents, they tell me. I hope to get the chance to revisit Terminus in a future episode and perhaps explore some of these new directions. As always, I would very much appreciate any feedback you might have on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at searchspacepod. Although my Twitter presence is now very close to zero, so a safer bet is to send me an email to felix at thesearch.space or just go to the webpage, which is thesearch.space. And from there, if you are filled with enthusiasm for logic and semantic technologies, you can even buy me a cup of coffee, which would make me feel so appreciated. And many thanks to those of you who bought me cups of coffee since the last episode. Last but not least, if you like the podcast, please share it with your network. And if you love it, please give it five stars or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, so you can help other people find it. The music is Phase One by Silo Zyko, used under Creative Commons license.